talking about how evil spirits might be able to attack. We're in Ephesians 6. In Ephesians 6 is what happens here in this text. And Jay, that's the best I can do with it. Is that okay? That's the best I can give. In Ephesians 6, down in verse 10. This is a New Testament passage that is appropriate and applicable to every single one of us in the room. And it leaves us and it guides us into a variety of information that's very, very important. Finally, my brethren, finally is the idea of I've given you all kinds of practical things. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have been doctrinal. Chapters 4, 5, 6 has been practical in how we carry out our doctrine. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? in order that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take to you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness. And he goes on and describes the breast of the armor. Now, we're going to get to this passage in time and talk about it. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start talking about the believer's armor. And there's very specific specifics given about what armor we're supposed to take. But let's just talk and pause for a moment at the beginning verses of what we read, where he's talking about we need to be strong in the Lord, put on the whole armor. Why? Because there is the wiles of the devil, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, and he describes uh, the attacks. Now, according to this passage, okay, there are several thoughts that we need to keep in mind. And we're saying, okay, what stands out about this text? We are in a battle. And by the way, the plural ver- the plurals that he uses here, the plural verbs, is every single one of us. It's not just a few, and it's not just, you know, like writing to Timothy and Titus. This is to a church at, at broad. And he's talking, saying, my brethren, every one of us who is born again are involved in a spiritual battle. Whether we want to be or not, we're involved. Something else that stands out, the battle comes to us. Okay, be strong, stand against the ideas that they are rushing you, they are attacking you. That's a truism, that the attacks from Satan, the attacks from evil spirits, the attacks and temptations are not going to wait for you to seek them out. They're going to come after you. Something else that, that strikes me, the enemies who are bringing the attack, he is very clear these are evil spiritual forces. These forces are, are um, more than just one. There's, there's plurality in here what they're doing. In fact, the passage is implying we can have victory. You can withstand. You can resist. In fact, James says the same thing, that if you resist the devil, he will... Okay, so the implication is we can have victory. But we're not supposed to be relying upon our own experience, our own wisdom, our own strength. Very clearly, verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord. Okay, the weapons, the armor is from the Lord. The panoply, literally, is from God. It's something that, that is clearly, clearly demonstrated that it's not in our strength. The uh, idea in the text, and when this is the helpful part that we're going to look at today, God reveals some things about the enemy. He reveals the wiles, the attack, the fiery darts that he talks about or the javelins, the spears that he throws at us. He refers that and tells us that the enemy is attacking us with some very specific attacks, some pointed attacks. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But God has left us a plan, this text, and this word will be in a couple, two, three weeks, the plan and the weapons that God has given us to resist, they're mentioned in this passage that we need to know about. I want to focus today on the fiery darts. 
I want to focus in on the attacks that are made. And the reason I want to do that is because we know that Satan is a danger. He is a menace and his hordes that work with him. He is a master attacker. He is a, he is a really, really, really enormous enemy that we face. And part of the reason that we, we need to fear him, part of the reason that we need to, um, we need to respect Okay, the, and not take him for granted and to really wisely understand that he, that he is a dangerous enemy is because of his... Well, let me rephrase that. What makes him such a strong opponent to you and me? Okay, he has experience. Okay, how many years of experience in doing this? We don't know the number of years. But ever since the beginning of mankind... Okay, what else makes him uh, a really, you know, great opponent, powerful opponent? He's got experience. Okay, he looks good, okay, in the sense that he appears at times as something positive, and he presents himself that way, okay? What did somebody say through here? He knows God's Word. Does that give him a jump on us at times? Yeah, yeah, he understands, he knows God's Word. May not accept it, but he knows it. What else? Anything else that stands out? Superior intellect. Is he called, is he stated to be a wise individual? Absolutely. Ezekiel, I'll put it up here in a second. All right? In the Ephesians passage, it says we wrestle against rulers, principalities, all those words are implying something. There's a multiplicity involved, and what else about them? Rulers, principalities. There's an organization. There's a spiritual organization involved here that he has a systematic approach. There's another thought that I want to throw at you, and then I'll put most of your answers on the board. There's another thought. Does he know the weaknesses in the sense that does he, do they see you in your weak moments, in your secret sins? Yes, that's an aware, they have an awareness of that. Now, you know, you don't know, or I don't know about you, we don't know each other's secret hidden sins. But the spirit world, it's not that they can read my mind, things like that, but they can see what I have done to be aware that they know those areas that, that I'm, liable to. Um, For me, for a long time, car problems was just one of those difficulties that just really frustrated me. Now, nobody else here ever has that problem, okay? But it seemed like during that period of time that car problems really irritated me that I had a lot of car problems. Why would that be the case? One is, it's a weakness that Satan will attack, and it's a weakness that God he wants, God wants this changed, okay? And so there was, a, there was an extended period in my life that it was like, well, when we have car problems, it was just watch out, Deb, okay? <laughs> just because it was the frustration of it. And, uh, and that seems to be where like, Satan can be aware of how we respond in that regard. So I put up probably what you just said, okay? And I didn't say this one. I forgot about it. He's powerful. He's very subtle. Remember, he is said to be the most subtle of the creatures. But as Wayne said, there's the filling of wisdom from Ezekiel 28. He's a professional liar and deceiver. 
far better than you and I as far as, you know, his evil, his corruptness. He's experienced. He has hordes of helpers, which you mentioned. He knows our secret weaknesses. They're well organized. He knows God's words well. He mixes truth and error, which we talked about a little bit last week, and we'll just refresh in a moment. He can duplicate God's works. We forgot about this, that can he do miracles? To confuse, absolutely. Okay, um, he's a well-filled arsenal, the darts, the plural there. He is very determined and focused. Now let's add to this a couple other thoughts. He has a better understanding of the spiritual stakes than you do, and I do. Okay, does that make sense? What I'm saying, sometimes we get caught up with the things of this world. Okay, true? And sometimes we don't think about the spiritual aspect. He is thinking and living in the spiritual realm that he understands the spiritual stakes. And so his motivation at times where we lose the motivation for setting our, our affections on things above, he definitely has that motivation. Even in, in the end times, he knows his time is short and he is motivated in that, in that spiritual realm far more than we are at times. Plus there's this that makes him just a, just a terrible opponent is we're easy prey. We have that sin nature. We have the sinful tendencies. So we're easy prey for him. And especially if we don't abide in Christ. And does it ever happen that believers take for granted their walk with the Lord and do not spend time abiding in him? Let, let's, let's be honest. Does it ever happen to us? Yeah. Yeah, we have those moments, we have those times, we may have those days or those weeks, which then makes us even more vulnerable. It's like we're going out to battle naked, without a weapon. And so here he is, this powerful enemy, and his attacks are amazing. Now we've alluded to it that he has fiery darts, plural. He has multiple ways of attacking. You and I, therefore, need to be cautious to say, okay, what are some of those darts that are specifically stated in the Word of God that he might use? Well, we talked about this last week in Genesis 3. If you were here, we're just going to run through this, and if you weren't here, sorry for our speed through it, but in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are tempted. Eve is by herself when he first comes and the snake tempts her. And his method of operation, we said, is very simple. We said that he attacks even good, strong people. We made that observation that they were strong. We listed a lot of things that they were more, they, they were uh, closer to the Lord than we are. They were wiser than we are. They were more innocent than we are. They didn't have the sin nature, and yet they're attacked. We made an observation that he attacks at vulnerable moments, such as when she was alone, they gotten used to the peace and prosperity or the goodness of the Lord, and how long that, inter that took place, we don't know, between their, their creation and their, their attack. It had to be sometime after creation week, because on day seven, the Lord rested and saw all that he had created, that it was good. And then we read the temptation, whatever that time period is between, we don't know. He, we uh, didn't say this, but this is a truism. The people, Satan can use the people we like and love and would often listen to, okay? In the sense that Eve brings the fruit to Adam. Do you remember any other time in the scriptures where a friend tried to tempt an, a friend that they dearly loved and they were rebuked? and said, get thee be... Okay. Satan tries to attack Jesus via his, his disciples. Okay. Can Satan use the influence of people around us? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Let's say he's persistent. 
the argument, the discussion, I should say not the argument, but the discussion he has, he's very persistent. In fact, he tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation, and it says, Satan left Jesus, anybody remember the next word? For a while or for some time. And he, so obviously he comes back and tempts Jesus again later on. He's very subtle, he's very strong, and we made these comments that the subtle darts that he used included doubt, doubting whether God cared, and if you weren't with us, we made these observations that she adds to God's word. God said we aren't even supposed to touch it, as if God is being too restrictive to us. She makes the, co the comment that God said we are not supposed to do this, or Satan did, uh, or you shall be as God's, okay, as if this God's keeping back something good. She makes the comment that lest we die well, there was the certainty in chapter 2, there's the possibility given where she makes a comment, maybe we'll die, but God had said, if you eat this fruit, you shall surely, okay, yeah. In the English it comes out and it's that way in the Hebrew, that it's very definitive. And so there's doubt that is used. That's an attack, that's a dart. There's the denial of God's word. This is one of the attacks. This is, this is where he said, you shall not surely die. The deceit that he uses, he mixes truth and error, Okay, that your eyes shall be open, true, but you, the lie, you shall be as God's. Uh, the dart that he uses, desires. Remember, she saw, she saw it was good. And we read about that in First John about the lust of the uh, uh, flesh, the eyes, the pride, the lust of the eyes. I forgot a word there, and the pride of life. And so he uses those darts. And we made these observations that God attacks, or I'm sorry, Satan attacks us. We've got to be very, very careful. Now, my question goes beyond that, and here's. Where I want to go today. Okay, man's out of the Garden of Eden. Those are some of the tools that Satan used, and he uses them effectively today. Okay, what are some of the other tools that he uses? Because he continues to attack. He even attacked the Son of God. So we know that we, as children of God, are going to be attacked. What are some? of the attacks that he uses against us. What does he do? Um, maybe I can illustrate this way. You've heard of General Douglas MacArthur. He's you know, a heroic figure in American history and did a lot, and we know all about him and Truman and, and their conflicts and how that, how that turned out. However, he wrote a book at the peak of his military career that it was a book talking about military success. It's very interesting what he says that we need to do, we need to have as American troops or American army in order to have success. One is there needs to be a morale. There needs to be a purpose, a desire. There needs to be something that motivates the troops to say, I have a cause for which I'm fighting. Without a cause, there isn't going to be the determination. He said that the second thing you need is strength. By that is you need the adequate weapons, you need the adequate troops, you need to have the personnel. You can't fight the battle without the personnel. Right along with that, he made this observation that there needs to be supplies. You need to be able to reinforce your personnel. You need to be able to get them the ammo, the equipment, the food that is necessary. His fourth comment was this, you need to have a knowledge of the enemy. You need to know your enemy as far as to have the victory. What are his weaknesses? What are his strengths? What are his tendencies? And that will enhance your ability to be able to have a victory. For you and I, we have a cause, do we not, to glorify God. Do we have the resources? We do. We have the panoply of God, the armor of God, okay? Do we have a resupplying, a source of strength, 
We do. Do we have a knowledge of the enemy? All the other three that we've mentioned, that he mentioned, they are provided by the Lord. The, this one, the Lord gives us knowledge of the enemy, but it's whether we take advantage to say, okay, what does the Bible reveal about Satan? What does it tell us about his attacks? It is interesting how many times in the New Testament alone it, there's just a little statements like, lest Satan, da 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 da. And how many different comments made to the believers he points out that this is a tool that Satan can use against you. And how often in my own life that I, I don't catch that. I, I, I don't you know, acknowledge that, wait a minute, this form of whatever. This could be a satanic attack. Watch what he does in just a couple passages. Okay? We have been told in the New Testament that we're to be, not to be ignorant of his devices. Where this shows up in 2 Corinthians 2, he's talking specifically about one area that Satan often uses to attack believers. And in that area that he's talking about is this, division. Division between believers, causing disunity. He mentions it in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, he makes this comment when he's talking about put off the old man and put on the new man. And he talks about in that text, in fact, you're right close to it. Uh, just flip back a pack, uh, chapter or so. And you see where he makes the comment, put off, put on, in verse 22, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23. Verse 24 of chapter 4, that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 25, put away lying, speak to every man truth. We are members one of another. There he goes with unity. And our, and our unitedness in Christ. Then verse 26, be angry and sin not. Okay. Is anger okay at times? Yes, it is. It says in this passage, be angry and yet not sin. Okay? Was Jesus angry? Do you remember? I mean, did he display anger at the... Um, the temple, the money changers. Yeah, there was, a, there was a form of anger there, but it was a controlled and it was a righteous anger. It was not a bitterness. It was not an unforgiving spirit. So he says in this passage, okay, there's, there's opportunity for anger. However, do not sin. And he goes on and watch what he says. He says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. In other words, you might be angry, but what ought you not do? What did you say? Okay, dwell on it. Anything else that goes along with that? Okay. They're, they're both right. You're both right. What else? Don't nurse it. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, okay. In other words, don't let this thing become bitterness, Right? Don't, don't keep the grudge. Don't let it continue. If you've got a problem with somebody, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, we're supposed to go to them. We're supposed to deal with it and reconcile. Don't let it just fester, 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 fester. Then he gives you the reason why this is important. Okay? The reason is in verse 27. Neither give place to who? The devil. Do you realize what he's implying? This is a tool that Satan often uses anger, frustration, just 
ongoing conflicts. That is brought up again where he's, where he's going to talk about that idea of harboring anger, not forgiving, not dealing with a problem. And by the way, let, let's be honest. Some people say, I hate confrontation. Have you ever met people like that? Probably the last time you saw somebody like that was when you looked in the mirror. Okay? Because who loves... I know there's the rare bird. Okay? We, we all know the rare person who seems to thrive on confrontation. And they love drama. And they love beating other people up. In our culture, we call them what type of people? Bullies. Okay? We understand there's some people. But the normal person... The normal, and I'm saying it because I think I'm normal, okay? And, and I think most of you are normal too. Most of us here do not like confrontation. Is that, is that a gimme? Is that a fair statement? We'd just as soon avoid it, okay? Uh, and we feel like if we have to go to somebody, it's because we have to go to that person. We, we, okay, and so we do it. In this text, he's talking about that idea of don't, don't get to the point to say, well, I'm just, I just don't like confrontation, well, if you don't like confrontation, and you're going to, as you said, Sandy, nurse the hurt, who are you giving place to? You're giving place to the devil. That's an interesting concept that we often excuse on uh, lack of forgiveness or we excuse an anger or a bitterness by saying, well, that's just my personality. Do you realize that could be a satanic attack in your life? He talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is the passage where, if you remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man that he wants the church to deal with. There's a man in the church who, do you remember his sin that he's doing with? And he says, you got you to put this guy out of the church. Do you remember what he's doing? He's doing something that even the unsaved look at and say, are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah. He's having an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And he says, even the world goes, oh, that's gross. And by the way, does the world today still go, that's really gross? Okay, right? Okay. And I, I know not every, every culture and every world spot, but generally speaking, we go, that's kind of bizarre. That's, okay. And so he's writing to them, and he tells them in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, you've got to put out that person out of the church after you've rebuked him, he's not changed, because a little... Do you remember the, the illustration? A little leaven, okay, it'll affect the whole body. So they apparently have responded by, by, uh, by putting the man out of the church. And the problem that was some of the people in the church were saying, well, we're going to love him. We're just going to love him and love him back into righteousness. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that love sometimes takes the tough love. It rebukes, it corrects. And so he says, that's what you have to do. And because that little love and love is a whole lump. And so they did it. They kicked him out. But then when we get the letter in 2 Corinthians, apparently the man has repented. And what's the problem now? Do you remember the setting? They're not forgiving him. They're, they're saying, you're out, you're, you're done. We want nothing to do with you. But the man has repented. And he is saying, okay, he's going to be over, overwhelmed. He's going to be swallowed up by the enemy unless you bring him back in when he's repented. And then this statement is made. Forgive and comfort him, or he may be overcome by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him, lest Satan get an advantage. 
The idea is, okay, should we forgive somebody who has repented? Yes, because if we don't, what, who, get, who wins the battle? Satan does. So the, the, the application can be this. If we withhold forgiveness from somebody, if we withhold fellowship from someone who has repented or asked our forgiveness, and we say, I'm not going to forgive them, you may feel righteously inclined to hang on to your, your hurt, but in the end result, who is casting a dart at your heart? Okay? It's Satan. The lack of forgiveness. Okay? And by the way, there are some of those rare cases that, that you and I know this. We understand this. That you might forgive somebody, but you may not trust them again. True? Okay, is that appropriate at times? Okay, I'm going to give you the, the, the grossest of illustrations. If somebody were to molest one of my kids when we were raising them, if they were molested, they could ask me for forgiveness. I could forgive them, but there's never a time I will let that person be with those kids or anybody else's kids if I can help it. Yes? Okay. Um, if, some, if we had a treasurer here, Okay, and the treasurer says, I'm going to help myself to $200,000 out of the church's funds, and they're going to take a vacation to Florida. Okay, some of us would say, don't you come back. Okay, take a one-way ticket. They might come back, and they may repent. We as a church could forgive them. Are you going to vote them back into being a treasurer? Okay, because whose, whose issue is the, is the broken trust? It's theirs. It's not my fault that I don't trust them. That's a simple consequence of their sin. Yes, no? Okay. So I can forgive them. What that, the difference is, uh, forgiving is, I can have some contact with them, but I'm going to keep them within a parameter until the trust is rebuilt. And the burden of rebuilding the trust in those cases is not on us. The burden of rebuilding trust is on that person. By the way, I'll give you true life illustrations that, that this, is, this is so difficult for people that have done the act. You get somebody, you get a couple, and one has gone off and been unfaithful. They repent, they come back. Please forgive me, please forgive me. They crave the forgiveness, okay? And right away, and then if the, if the couple responds, it's okay, we're going to, we're, I'm going to forgive you. That doesn't mean they're going to fully trust that, that one who violated the vows. They're going to trust them. They're going to want to have a better accountability. They might ask the questions, where'd you go? And it's not that they haven't forgiven. It's you get the burden of rebuilding the trust. And I find this amazing that sometimes the guilty parties do not want to take the responsibility but they're not giving you any leeway. And they even question your Christianity. How could you do that? Yeah, why don't you? And so Paul writes, and it's, it's, the story is, is all wrapped up here in the passage where he says, um, go to verse 17, you get the feel of what he's writing. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short period of time in presence, in, in physical presence, not in our heart, we endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. 
We wanted to come to you. We wanted to visit with you. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul. Not just one time, but I would have come. Yeah. He says, but who hindered me? Satan. Satan hindered us. Why would Satan keep Paul from having fellowship with other believers? What's that? Okay, it's going to cause strife. Because if he can keep them from, if he can keep Paul from ministry, uh, from their face, he's going to hinder Paul's ministry. And he creates this angst against Paul where the believers were assuming the worst about Paul. And they were assuming that Paul doesn't care. Well, if Paul doesn't care, we're not going to listen to him. Oh, by the way, what happens in this epistle? They started shifting in doctrine. They were more motivated in their beliefs by personality than by doctrine. Is, isn't that amazing? Isn't that striking? That Can you imagine people being drawn towards doctrine based upon who they liked rather than was it truth or not? Does that ever happen in modern 2018? That people choose denomination or church based upon personalities rather upon the creed of the scriptures? And so he's saying, this is, this is a, I know I've been targeted here. I know I've had fiery darts thrown at me in this area about assuming the worst, uh, the worst scenario about others. Not knowing all the facts, but just making an assumption. Haven't you ever experienced those attacks? That you just assume somebody did something dirty to you or, or inconsiderate to you and you don't know all the facts? Okay. Now, it's made easier because we live in a day where we can do a quicker communication, right? But do people always communicate? <laughs> and so this is all about division. What strikes me, and oh, oh, there's one more. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this one. This is written to preachers. Um, this is the last one. This is written to preachers, and he's talking. It's an interesting statement. He's talking about believers that are walking away from the Lord. Go down to chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Jump down into, um, into verse 22. And he's talking in generalities. Timothy, you need to do this, but then he expands it to all people. Jump down to chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verse 22. Flee youthful lust. How many people should do that? Just the preacher? Okay, flee youthful lusts, but follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call out, uh, that call in the Lord out of a pure heart. So who should we get along with in particular? Okay, the believers, the believers, those who call upon the name of the Lord. We're supposed to get along with them. Okay, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. The servant of the Lord must not, what's your Bible read? Strive, argue, fight, whatever. But be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, able to teach, okay? Uh, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Who would oppose themselves? What's he mean by instructing those who oppose themselves? Any idea? You read it, you got to understand what it says. Okay, it's talking about people that would, that, you know, I, I need to teach people, he's saying, Timothy, teach people who are doing things that are really not good for themselves. Do you, do you have you ever run into people that make bad decisions? Are there, are there such people out there? Are there such people, people who are picking up philosophies and ideas that are dangerous to them? 
Okay, I'll, I'll give you a simple one. I'll give you a simple one. In modern day parenting, what is the popular comment about training children and disciplining children? Don't discipline, right? Okay, don't discipline children and just use only positive reinforcement. I think positive reinforcement can start right here. But, uh, they, but that is a common conception, right? Is it sucked up even by believers? Does that oppose them by buying into it? Are they opposing themselves in producing good kids? They are. They are. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, Okay, and so if you oppose, you know, somebody might be opposing themselves in their parenting skills. Somebody might be opposing themselves in their marriage by saying, well, I heard from work that this is the way you treat your wife. You just, you know, keep her barefoot and pregnant. Well, you're definitely opposing yourself, okay, and you're going to get other opposition. And so, you know, submission means, you know, you, you do everything I say, okay, and so is that, is that, opposing their relationship. Yeah, and so he's talking about people who are struggling, people who are babes, who are opposing themselves, and he goes on, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of what? The snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So somebody who is walking away from the Lord, okay, one of the ways that we can recover them is go to them in a spirit of meekness, meekness and love, and try to recover them, okay, and try to reset the broken bones, the Galatians chapter 6. But if we go in an arrogant, pompous, condescending way, can we advance the cause of Satan by pushing them away? Yeah, yeah. And so we have to be very careful that we, when we're approaching people, that we're not short, we're not rough, we're not belligerent. By the way, this is parenting, parenting 101. Okay, as you're instructing your kids, be careful of your attitude. Your attitude and the way you're making good corrections, if you're doing it in the wrong way, you can push your kids away. If you're disrespectful, if you're crude, if you're rough, if you're condescending, I'm not talking about having tough love. But even your attitude and how you're making corrections can have tremendous impact on whether they'll listen to you or not. And so in this text, he's talking all about this whole idea. Let me wrap up with this. Why do you think in all of these areas, why does there are so many com, uh, con, um, yeah, conversations, why is Satan mentioned so many times in causing division? Why would he bother causing division in the body of Christ? What's that? It stops productivity. What do you mean it stops productivity? Oh. It's so true, so true. Watch, watch if we just remind ourselves. 30 times in the New Testament epistles, it talks about unity in the body of Christ. 30 times. If Jesus and God mentions 30 times in the epistles that we're supposed to have unity, what does that tell you? We're supposed to have unity, okay? Does it tell you it's an important topic to God? Okay, it's an important spiritual topic. Let's say this. Did Jesus make unity a priority? Do you remember his great high priestly prayer the night before he dies? He prays that we all may be one. In fact, let's take this a little bit further. When he prays that prayer, he is praying that we may be one so that the world may know that, Father, you have sent me, as Jesus says. 
so that the world may believe. Twice he makes this comment that unity is critical in evangelism. If there's not unity, you're going to, we're going to fail in evangelism. And evangelism is a major job for us, is it not? If we don't have unity, then, well, let, let's rephrase that. Let's, let's take the negative. If we have bitter, bitter arguing and strife, what does that do when it comes to evangelism? We're more focused on the... the yeah, we're focused on our arguing and winning our argument instead of winning the lost. What's that? You shall know that you are Christians by our love one towards another. Okay, does that mean we should, we should not confront when confrontation is needed? No, that is not what the text is saying. But what it is saying is we have got to be careful of the anger, the, uh, the lack of going to somebody and taking care of things properly. We've got to be careful of... of uh, distancing ourselves from other believers, holding a grudge, misunderstanding. We have got to be careful because this is a strong dart. By the way, let, let's, let's bring it to her. Is this dangerous to your marriage? Is disunity dangerous in your marriage? Yes or no? Yeah. Is it dangerous to your relationship with your kids? Huge. What about your kids getting along? Yeah. Now let's take it to the body of Christ. Same thing is true. We know that Satan is real. This is, this is the one that strikes me more than anything. Uh, we were driving away from a wedding last night. I was telling my wife. I said, I am so impressed this week about this area and how clever Satan is in causing division within a church. Wow. You and I need to be careful.